This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. How did YouTube go from a place to find funny cat videos to a haven for political extremism? Our guest on this episode, Mark Bergen, is an award-winning tech journalist at Bloomberg News. His new book, Like, Comment, Subscribe, is the definitive story of how YouTube upended traditional media and changed the world through untamed freedom of speech. He joined Luke Naylor Perrett to tell us more. So let's start with the basics. Your book covers an awful lot, basically the the sort of cultural history of of YouTube. Let's start with Google and YouTube as a workplace. What is it like having studied it for so long? What I get as a layman is is the sort of weird gimmicks, the the puppy parties and the slides and, and the wheel desks. Is there a darker side to it? Is that actually accurate? What is it like as a workplace? Google really invented uh, what's now sort of commonplace in, in Silicon Valley and our, and our cultural understanding of Silicon Valley of like the coddled workplace, right? The the employees that uh, you take the the Wi-Fi, you know, air conditioned buses, shuttle buses down to campus, and and you have all the amenities, and you have the massage rooms, and kombucha on tap, and uh, and effectively like a workplace where you're very much encouraged to stay there as long as possible. Um, and this was like a, especially around the time when, so YouTube joins Google in 2006. And this is sort of, uh, this booming period during with, with Google. It's just gone public. It has more money than God. And it has these, these young employees that are, um, I, I think at the time, certainly very idealistic about the internet and its possibility. And Google was a sort of, um, insurgent force in technology, in, in, in culture and media, uh, in corporate America. Uh, and I think, you know, people that generally in, enjoyed working there, YouTube was, it's, so it operates in a separate campus from Google. It's a few miles north in, in uh, San, San Bruno, a satellite suburb of, of San Francisco. And they bought this actually like uh, a few weeks. Um, they moved in like the day before, I believe, or maybe the day of the, the Google acquisition actually. And have, and have been there ever since, uh, you know, the, the one, big amenity that the YouTube office is that they have this gigantic uh, slide and you can go on YouTube and, and watch a bunch of videos of it. They like, they previously, certainly before the pandemic used to have YouTubers come in and, and visit the campus. Uh, and this was one of these amenities to try to encourage people at Google to come work for YouTube. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, a lot has changed, but this was a decade ago. And at the time YouTube really wasn't a desirable place to work. 
uh, relative to the rest of, of Google. Um, and some of that was just that it wasn't seen as like a driver of innovation and growth for the company. And some of it, to be totally frank, was like they're just, it didn't have the amenities there for a long time. It didn't have um, on-site chefs, right? And uh, it didn't have a lot of these like Google really high-end amenities that, that employees wanted to work for. And so I thought that was like a really interesting dynamic in the history. But but overall, you know, YouTube employees, I think, uh, certainly the Google employees until the past few recent years have, I think, lived up to that reputation of being a relatively happy, joyous place to work, unless you're in the throes of the, the political problems. Which, of course, there are many. And actually, on that, let's let's step even further back. You call them the YouTube dudes, the, the founders of YouTube. It was something that really shocked me that YouTube started off in its idea phase as a dating platform. And, you know, a decade down the line, Me Too happens, sexism scandals happen at YouTube and Google. I wonder if you could illuminate the YouTube dudes, the founders, and what echoes those foundational years and those foundational people have on the the workplace and on the, the world moving forward. Sure. So YouTube is run by, by three alums from, from PayPal. So Chad Hurley was a designer at PayPal, uh, actually credited with sort of designing the, the, the initial logo that, that PayPal came up with. And Steve Chen and Javad Karim were, were engineers there. And they met at, at PayPal. PayPal was this sort of notorious company for um, these like type A overachievers. You know, you have like what's, what's been uh, now famous in the valley of like the PayPal mafia that went on to start. Uh, Yelp and SpaceX and LinkedIn. You know, I talked to like people that worked with the, with the founders of YouTube. They were certainly well, they were res- respected and regarded pretty well as like talented uh, designers and engineers, but they weren't really seen as someone, people who were going to start uh, a, a big world changing company. Uh, and so I think it surprised, um, I know it surprised a lot of, a lot of their peers when they came out of the gate. You know, at the time it was, uh, it was this really like scrappy era in, in Silicon Valley and YouTube uh, for the 18 months before it was bought by by Google. It was a pretty tiny company at the size of 60 people then. Um, I don't know the ratio. I think it's like skewed pretty heavily toward, towards towards men. Uh, you know, the, some of the, the early important their their first lawyer was a woman and and set some of the I think like really drastic like dramatic changes in some of the the, the culture and rules around um, content moderation. And I, I think that, you know, there was uh, it didn't have the reputation, say, of like uh, an, an Uber um, or even of a Facebook of sort of like I think, it you know, even through its later years, YouTube certainly was accused of like leaning towards machismo and like having a very like male heavy leadership. And I think that this is reflected in the sense of not having a lot of empathy or um, understanding of the like the female YouTuber experience. Uh, which became these like really, and I think some of that is, you know, a really a great example, um, is what they call beauty gurus now, like fashion and makeup tutorials on YouTube, which is a gigantic category, really like transformed the industry for its first few years. It was this kind of mystery for a lot of people at, at Google and YouTube. Uh, and you talk to like early beauty creators, like YouTube didn't know how to categorize them. Uh, it took, I think it was until 2014, which is like nine years into the site's existence until I like, really finally woke up and said, like, Oh my God, we have this like, pretty fantastic commercial opportunity sitting on our hands here. And in this group of creators, we have kind of, we haven't really managed or given them resources. And, and I think some of that can be certainly attributed to the fact uh, about like the, the dynamics of, of the company that's founding in that, in that certain time in Silicon Valley. So 
you threw this 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 relationship between creators and the sort of the the, the founders or, or just the um, the people who run YouTube. And throughout your book, I got the sense that there is an ever so slightly antagonistic relationship between creator and and sort of business. Um, a couple of examples really struck out to me. Firstly, when Casey Neistat, a uh, famous YouTuber from New York, wanted to do a sort of post Las Vegas shooting ad drive and promised to give the ad money to charity, YouTube demonetized it because it had reference to a shooting, which seems like a sort of open goal. The other the other very sort of famous moment is is when someone is told that they need to write the copy, but it should have, quote, no personality. It should sound like a computer, right? What is YouTube's relationship with creativity, with its creators and its, its, um, its content? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. And, and I, I hope the book does the justice to, I think, a, a really important and fascinating story of, of like YouTube was the single most important company in birthing this new creative economy that, you know, that, that they were the first company to pay people online to produce video and really produce content in, in a meaningful way. Now you're seeing social media, there's a lot of platforms sort of moving in that same direction, right? So TikTok's basically just copying YouTube model and, and it, but the short form video and, it, and it, but they're the first to really pay creators. Instagram's trying, you know, like Roblox, Spotify, Twitch, like all these sort of platforms are moving in this world where social media no longer looks like Oh, it's a feed with, with my friends that I know and with the college with. No, it's full of like these influencers and creators who I certainly don't know, but may have this kind of personal relationship with. So, and, and that was a profoundly new form of entertainment and media that I don't think, uh, I think YouTube has, has certainly took a long time to, to recognize that. And part of that was the beginning its early years that they just didn't see the commercial potential for creators. Like it wasn't um, something where they thought that at their their model at the time was we're gonna you know we're Google Google's the world's biggest digital advertising company we're gonna like stick ads on these videos it's gonna be great but we can't do that on you mentioned dogs on skateboards right like the early sort of viral videos that that went out there was two problems with that one is that the quality you know advertisers are like why am I running an ad on on this thing that doesn't look anything like primetime TV and, and the second is sort of the unpredictability which I think is sort of lost on. I found it really interesting in, in reporting the book. You know, the way that television advertising works for a long time is like, I'm going to buy ahead a season, you know, in the spring, I'm going to buy for the fall schedule. Uh, and YouTube came to the advertisers like, look, we have this tremendous audience. We have these all sorts of, you know, millions of creators pushing videos that we're not paying for, right? It's not like TV, but we have, we have, cannot predict at all what's going to be a, a viral hit tomorrow, today, let alone in the fall. Uh, and so that was a big structural problem where for a long time it was like YouTube just didn't see potential with its, its creators. There was a, a survey that Variety, that there's a Hollywood trade publication published in 2014 where it said, you know, YouTubers are just as popular many times, in many cases more popular with, with teens. I think they, they pulled teens than A-list celebrities, right? So they had like PewDiePie and Smosh, these big YouTubers. Teens recognize them more than they recognize Johnny Depp and, and Jennifer Aniston. Maybe Johnny Depp now regains the popularity given his recent uh, online virality. But the point is that, that that article went around YouTube and they said, like the people who were there described it to me as this, this epiphany moment, which in hindsight seems kind of silly, like how late they were, but, but oh wow, we have celebrities here on our platform. So yeah, it's fast forward a few years and you mentioned the Casey Neistat video. It's a really 
telling Snapshot that this was a time when when YouTube was going through 2017 was sort of its its worst year, uh, and, and that started with some major creator controversies and then a, a sustained advertising boycott over extremist and troublesome inappropriate videos. And, and so what they end up doing in particular cases like that is they set their filters really strictly and, and they're like, we don't want any ads to run on anything inappropriate having to do with mass violence and in that case, mass shooting. Um, and so that, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage. The history of YouTube is a history of like, the company sort of unintentionally uh, making decisions to uh, have that have like severe economic consequences for for this creator economy because the rules of the road weren't very clear and they built a system that was just with with, with just so many people making so much money uh, at a time and then it kind of when when every time they tweak the dials it had like really profound consequences. So one of those dial tweaks that I'd like to I'd like to key in on is. What I think is probably the most important moment in the whole story, which is the moment that they decide to go for watch time rather than anything else. And we may discuss in a moment about what that does to the kind of political ecosystem, but just staying on the creators, the stories are heartbreaking. You know, people who've set their whole lives based on views or likes or comments, you know, you describe um, a bloodbath, uh, channels are destroyed overnight. This decision to go watch time reflects something else in the book, which is this, at least when I read it, this idea that YouTube is just a story of growth at all costs, is sort of the archetypal late stage capital. You know, Larry Page, the uh, the creator has this thing just 10 times bigger, you know, break the internet, just, just make it big. To what extent is YouTube just a sort of horror story of the capitalism age that we live in right now? So, um, that particular watch time transition, I thought, uh, was really interesting for a, a couple of reasons. So that just to take a uh, audience context, like this was, you know, initially YouTube's first, their primary metric for like, how they're going to rank algorithmically rank the videos in their search. And, you know, when you type in, uh, into youtube.com on, on a, like on the search box or in the related videos is it, initially it was based on number of clicks, the number of views that you had. So if you clicked on a video, watched it for two seconds, said, this is trash. I'm not going to watch anymore. That still counted as if you watched the entirety of the video. And so I think reasonably at the time, YouTube was like, this is a really like shoddy metric. We, we need to find a better way to, uh, reward videos. And, and this was also like dovetailing with this, this idea that, oh, this was sort of the beginning of like social feeds. Facebook would had just jumped out of college dorms and was now like becoming this worldwide phenomenon. And, and so YouTube's like, well, we can tailor sort of personal feeds and, like servicing like a, a specific feed for you and that'll give you the videos that you as a viewer that you really want. And also we can like prioritize the videos that you watch the longest, which makes logical sense. Google is an extraordinarily logical company. I think I hesitate to, to uh, I think the growth at all cost, um, you know, in that example, like they actually lost revenue initially from that chain. Like overall that, that had a, you know, that basically just like unlocked this, business potential and they, they went from like zero to 60, but like, and certainly saw that as, as the goal, right? Their goal was to like, Hey, you know, we have a certain, at that point it was like five to seven minutes of every, like the average daily viewing session. Someone watches YouTube and maybe doing it five to seven minutes a day. You know, TV is four to five hours a day. Like we should be on scale with TV. Like we are just as good as TV. Right. Um, so I think that, that for sure, that's the, the 10 X mindset that you mentioned that, that Larry Page, the founder of Google had, 
the, the interesting thing about, about YouTube is like a lot of the decisions they, they make when you say growth at all costs, like they, they, I think that because they're balancing this, this greater economy on one side and like the decisions they make to like say grow, um, you know, they, they could grow at all costs. That could have been to like never share a single cent with, with YouTubers that clearly wouldn't have, you know, if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have had like millions of people creating content for them. And they've made some decisions to like cut back recently. Uh, I think in that uh, cut back on, on things that maybe like dent their engagement because of political concerns. And that's, but I think at that point in time, it was like, um, certainly growth was the most important thing. Um, but they just, it, you know, they, there was a sort of unintended consequences where they didn't see the um, side effects, uh, the downstream uh, impacts of say, like, we're just going to prioritize engagement over everything else. And because we sort of trust our, our viewers and users that they're, um, you know, this time, like there was no sense that like, oh, this could lead to, you know, all sorts of troubling uh, things like filter bubbles and conspiracy theories um, and propaganda and all these things that like really just weren't on the radar at the time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's stay exactly on that. It's described by someone in the book that the ecosystem is, as a quote, a kind of long-term addiction machine. So Claire Stapleton, which is sort of one of the key figures in, in your book that you, you might want to talk about a little bit, on her first day, she describes Google as a strange utopia. But utopias have to have ideals and they have to have morals. And there's this constant background noise of YouTube kind of pretending that it doesn't have ideals or it doesn't have political ideas. It's freedom of speech, freedom of speech, trust the people, trust the masses. We don't have any ideals. Is this a fair reflection on what was actually going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I think, um, I do think YouTube had, I think their ideas have certainly shifted. And I think at some point, you know, the book spends a lot of time in the Arab Spring, which was this really fascinating moment in, 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 in sort of, Certainly with, with Facebook and Twitter and YouTube as well, like it became the, the, the stage for, and this was like social media was taking down dictators, right? And like, and for YouTube space, it was like, oh wow, here's a really great opportunity to sort of prove that we are a legitimate uh, platform for, uh, you know, actual news. And like, th this was again, uh, to go back to the point, like this was a time when they had trouble convincing advertisers of the legitimacy that, 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 that the dogs on skateboard site. And now it's like, we're not just dogs on skateboard, but we're actually like revolutions in, in Iran and, uh, and across the, uh, the Arab world. And that point, they also fought like tooth and nail to keep videos up that governments want to take down. And, and there was a, a, a classic example in the book is this Innocence of Muslims, which, which was a movie trailer for a movie that, that never got made or sorry, never released. It, it was, um, you go back, it's, it, you go watch it. It's like, uh, it is kind of a ludicrously poorly acted film and, and depicts the Prophet Muhammad as this like backwards barbarian and it's like very critical of Islam. Uh, and it was, it, it kind of wrapped up around this time, uh, of the Benghazi, uh, attacks and this sort of like whirlwind of like political change happening, uh, where the Arab Spring started to, to, to turn. 
Uh, and YouTube at the time, like the State Department, the Obama State Department said, like, maybe take this video down. Like, there are riots across the world and they're sort of pointing to this video from an American platform. And YouTube stands its ground. So I, I like that. Like, listen, if you fast forward a few years, if that happened today, they would, I, I'm almost guaranteed they would take the video down. Like, they're, they're so much more inclined to do that after, after 2016. And so there was this moral framework of, uh, which I think was, was, um, you know, people have described it as sort of naive, but it was like, we don't want to impose our sort of, the, the, the moral framework in some ways was we don't want to impose our morality on anybody else. Like, who are we to question in this case? Like, this looks like a, a criticism of religion. So like, who are we to decide whether we want to, you know, we can allow criticism of religion on our platform. We certainly want to like satire. We want like so much of YouTube was, was sort of satire. Um, and I think they, at that point, they didn't want to say like, we don't want to, uh, in, impose this, but both like, we don't want to impose this on, on other countries. And I think there was this, um, this idea that like, we are standing up for freedom of speech, which conveniently was, we are standing up for like keeping videos and content on the platform. Uh, and at the time this was like, they were being, they were fighting off, you know, copyright lawsuits. They were had from the early like beginnings of YouTube. Um, you know, the Thai government, Turkey, like named the country that wanted to shut it down. Um, so I do think that there was, uh, at least on the like legal policy team, uh, that had grown up in this certain era of the internet where like internet freedoms were always under threat. Does that extend to the entire corporate leadership? You certainly not. And I think that that's changed for a variety of reasons. But I do think that was sort of when, when I, like I thought Claire Stapleton's a fascinating character. She joins Google in 2007 and, and this was like a very different company than, than it was when she, when she left uh, in 2019. So jumping on that slightly, if you listen to certain commentators on certain news networks, or you go to parts of YouTube, you will hear the, the, the idea that YouTube is woke, that YouTube is anti-right wing, it's, it's anti-freedom speech. Two case studies in your, in your book that sort of run through. Firstly, the fact that routinely queer creators are hurt by the algorithm. Um, they're loop, sort of looped in with um, pornography. They are subjected to abuse based on the freedom of speech. Alex Monea, a, a, a writer, has this phrase, the digital closet. And I think that definitely comes in there. And then the second idea is this, you know, when it cracked down on ISIS and on extremism, things were, it, you know, you talk about ramping up the filter. There's a moment where they accidentally include the word Allah in their filter and wipe off, you know, they, they wipe off all the ads from Ramadan sales. Why is there such a discrepancy in news networks and on certain parts of YouTube compared to the reality, which is that the people who are really hurt by this are predominantly not right-wing conservative creators in this ecosystem? Yeah, I think that was one of the most interesting parts of the story for me is like, I think uh, they, in 2017, so after the, after the London tax and the London bridge attacks, it was, YouTube was sort of like a really tra- turning point for the company uh, when they were like, we need to start like sort of being much more aggressive. But before that, they were sort of handled these, these cases that like they would take down videos if they're violating the rules. They're like, they had a big problem with ISIS videos, but these, the approach was to sort of, we're certainly going to take down things if they're showing like graphic violence, but we're going to try to, to do what, what you, you, Google always talks like counter speech. Like, why don't we just produce more videos that like they got the state department to, to put out like anti ISIS propaganda. Uh, in 2017, that changes, and they're like, okay, and part of that was because they were in the midst of a, of a major advertising crisis. And so they decided, like, we're going to go, we're going to go very heavy-handed here, uh, not just the graphic violent videos, but the actual I- ideology underpinning that. 
Uh, so we're going to remove or restrict a lot of uh, Islamic clerics, Islamist clerics that were tied to these groups. There were staff inside, and, and I have a story in, in Business Week about this that pointed out, like, that was not an, an equal distribution of policy. Like, that was not a, a, the policy was not equally across all forms of violent extremism. And the most obvious case was sort of white nationalism, white supremacy. Um, YouTube's argument here is similar to, to I think, what, what other platforms have said is, you know, there's that basically like we can work within when, when governments have standards. Um, so as we know, in a post sort of 9-11 world, Western governments are much more inclined to go after Islamic terrorism. Uh, and so there are registries and sort of official structures in place uh, and, and to like categorize people. You know, once you're sort of categorized as an extremist and, and then YouTube can take, take action, there's like GIFTC, which is, um, forgive me, I don't know the acronym, but it's like a, a, all the tech companies collaborated on, like, we're going to identify terrorist content uh, across platforms, similar to the way we do child uh, pornography and copyright, right? So it's the same way that YouTube uh, works on copyright, where it's like they know every single copyrighted material that's put on the site. They have a phenomenal system for that. It's like world class and, and it's made them the, this financial success that they are, they basically did that same thing, but for a very narrow set for uh, Islamic extremism, effectively, uh, and, and registered terrorist groups. And and they, they, they've talked about this, sort of admitted it, but like certainly in the U.S., to doing so on the sort of far right and in white nationalist nationalism is hard because of intersection with like our contemporary politics is, is real. And so that's why I think, you know, that's where you're seeing all these calls of bias, especially since the, the pandemic began when YouTube became much more aggressive about taking down um, both misinformation about the, uh, the, the virus and, and vaccines. Uh, and then more recently in the U.S., at least about the, the 2020 election. And so, you know, and I think like, listen, there's, there's all sorts of, you talk a lot about like, well, how many of those criticisms are in bad faith, but like the way that YouTube operates. So, you know, there's not like a lot of communication. They don't get a, you know, even if I'm a, a conservative commentator on YouTube, I don't get a call. It's like, here's where in your video you said, this is where you kind of crossed our line. Uh, it's just that you get an automated email that says like, this, this video has been taken down, your account suspended, like this, you know, this video has been demonetized. And so it is this like Oz behind the curtain uh, for for both act for both you know groups all groups on YouTube are sort of uh, in some ways all groups are treated equally unless you're like one of the the mega stars which uh, you get a bit a bit more like hand holding. And just to we peek behind the curtain to Oz and we get my favorite line in the entire book which is quote once an entire staff meeting was devoted to addressing booty shaking videos. Um, which I just like to get on 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 record. Thanks for that one. That that was early. I mean, that was early on, and I will. Um, there was uh, now that you brought that up, like there was a sense that uh, it, I thought it was an interesting example too from early at YouTube's time at at Google. They were they ran into these like Tower of Babel problems with different countries having, and and the one that staff kept bringing up was like the UK was like very fine with sex, but like not good with like hooliganism. And so uh, at the time, there was a Rachel Whetstone was a was a, uh, a high rate. Like she ran Google policy and comms, believe is the, the close to David Cameron sort of in in UK um, circles and like went on the BBC Panorama in 2008. And, and the show was all about it's called like Children's Fight Club, I think, and all about the, the prevalence of uh, videos of kids fighting on YouTube. And, and she just gets like reamed on this topic right and so it comes back to the youtube staff and says like well why don't you guys clean up your act right um 
And so there was pressure from, from that to like remove things like graffiti videos, right? Or like, well, I think some people in, in YouTube thought was like, this is, um, you know, you're, you're basically kind of being classist here. And so that was like this really in, in um, tension and, and booty shaking videos is a really, I think a, a really fascinating topic where they'll, you know, they, they don't know. It's really hard to draw the line, uh, about what is sort of artistic, uh, and what is offensive. Um, another example a few years later is the, um, uh, the music video, uh, Blurred Lines, Robin Thick, um, this video, which is, you can go on YouTube and see it. It's, it's pretty, yeah, at the time it was pretty controversial. They're just naked supermodels cavorting, uh, topless, I think. I would think YouTube was okay with being topless. Like the kind of video that if you or I were to post it on YouTube, that would not work, right? And, and this was like, there was this extensive debate about like, is this an artistic, because YouTube had carved out this art, art exemption for artistic videos that could somehow like get around its rules. And then the company always sort of says, like, we have these standard, we have these operations in place. Uh, and yet there are moments like this where it's like there are, there are humans inside these companies making these calls just because that's like inevitably how media programming works. So kids fight club, booty shaking videos, dogs on skateboards. Another central theme, I think, is this idea that YouTube is desperately trying to stop being seen as lowbrow throughout the entirety of its of its history and i really got a sense of that inferiority complex trying to pander to traditional media trying to co-opt tv and get big celebrities could you speak a little bit about that and then also why youtube rewind 2018 in the context of this is such a big uh, case study there's 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 tension that runs throughout the book that i think is really fascinating between sort of how the way the company wants to to see itself or sees itself or wants it to to see itself with it, you know, the, inside the company, they say this is like the brand versus the platform. So the brand is sort of this is how YouTube sees itself, and the platform is like this is really what YouTube is, right? Uh, and, and in many ways, like the the sort of gift and, and curse of YouTube is like it is it is so large and so multifaceted that you can't say it's one thing, right? Like Hank, Hank Green is this he's a phenomenal sort of veteran YouTuber, and it's like. I think I asked him stupid questions or something, but, but w w how would you describe YouTube? And he's like, that's like asking you, how do you describe music? Right. It's like, you know, it's just such a broad category. So I, I do think that in, in that sense, like YouTube has, uh, I, I think a lot of failed opportunities to like, there has always been this, this quality programming on there. Like education is a perfect example. Like, um, you know, early on there were, there were like Hank Green and, and other, uh, YouTubers came on and, and made, like entertaining educational programs and they were actual educators making things for, for kids and toddlers and, and, and YouTube and Google sort of sees itself as like Google sees YouTube as like the world's biggest learning platform. I don't think a lot of regulators and politicians see that necessarily. I, I don't think a lot of school teachers see it that way either. Like they, they made attempts to have YouTube be part of school curriculum. Uh, and there's a sort of an alternative history where like they set the standards in place in which like, Maybe you, I think in that case, you'd have to sort of whitelist like a certain number of channels and videos, um, and then effectively like turn off the rest of YouTube. Um, and, and they, they didn't do that because, you know, they have this, this strong philosophy of like, we're not the gatekeepers deciding, uh, what sort of, you know, I, 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 what videos are like at, at various times they did this, but more or less like Google tends to want to say like, we want to be, uh, I love my create a level playing field is sort of a, a YouTube talking point for a long time. Uh, and to that extent, like then they try to do quality in, you know, 
they had something called Google Preferred. Um, now it's called YouTube Preferred, which is basically like a top shelf for, for advertisers, like where they said they charge advertisers rates comparable to, to TV. Uh, and that was basically a, 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 an algorithmic selection of the most popular videos on YouTube. And so they got into, in, in, in 2017, uh, got into some some really big problems there uh, when like they found out that Russia Today was in there. Uh, there were a lot of like very strange and troubling kids channels that were in there. So sorry to answer your question on on the 2018 rewind, which which is I th- re- related in the sense that there has always been this this gap between I think how the company uh, sees itself and operates and then and its biggest creators and, and PewDiePie at one point was that were their biggest creators that really canonical example there and and i the the youtube rewind was started in 2010 and it was actually like for for many years sort of like i think a really savvy marketing and uh creator outreach move from from youtube right it was a, so just it's it was a all the videos are still there you go back and it's like a um a feel-good sort of uh year review clip um that and and creators would often like you know really want to get in there right because it's a really good opportunity and it also looks sort of um it's, it just sees their standing in the in the pecking order on youtube by 2018 this was when there was so much tension between like the creator class and what they saw the priorities of youtube which partly it was that they saw the creator saw and i think understandably like youtube is is prioritizing traditional media it's like letting TV and record labels, like they really want them on there and like traditional media that has the resources and, and money to like produce more content and, and high, higher quality content. Uh, and so that's going to, this is around the time of the advertising workouts too. Like YouTube is much more inclined to run an ad on Jimmy Kimmel on YouTube than it is on Casey Neistat. Uh, and part of that is because not to get too in the weeds, but like ABC, which part of Disney actually like sells its own ads. Like it has enough of a sales team that can sell its own YouTube ads. Um, YouTubers don't have that. that so there's, there's a lot of structure to YouTube's business that like does just the way it's built um, tend to favor traditional media companies over its creators. And so 2018, I believe that was the one when they, they had Will Smith, which was sort of like adding insult to injury to like put in a movie star that had no relevance to like the culture of YouTube, which like to be clear, a lot of YouTubers feel this very deeply in a lot of YouTube fans like feel this affinity and they feel really insulted when they see someone like Will Smith. Uh, and that was, yeah, I believe YouTube has now removed the dislike button, uh, the thumbs down button from like the counts you can see, but it, it that I believe that became the most disliked video of all time, uh, beating out uh, Justin Bieber. Actually, <laughs> um, and just like you know, the book goes into a lot more detail about the consequences there and the sort of like darkly comedic uh, moments for the people working on YouTube's marketing team. Thank you for that. And, and, and speaking for personal experience, I, you know, I, I'm 25. I grew up with YouTube. I grew up with the sort of what I see as the golden age, but obviously every generation sees the golden age. And and this, you know, you mentioned Freddie Wong and you mentioned these sort of creators who are genuinely doing some really exciting stuff and it's sort of democratizing content. And there are musicians that I now follow now who started on YouTube and 2018, that, that rewind, it's partly Will Smith. It's also partly that Jimmy Kimmel and John Oliver and all of these people feature far more than the traditional creators. And you get the sense that, um, that we're pulling away from that, that nostalgia era, but something else that that video garnered was a lot of hatred for the fact that it included people who weren't American. And 
there is a, a chronic America centrism throughout YouTube's ideology, not only legally, and that's caught them out previously, but also in terms of content, also PewDiePie and that whole debacle about him fighting against a Bollywood channel. Could you speak about the America centrism, America centrism in, uh, in YouTube? Yes, and I'll come out the gate and say that I'm probably contributing it to my book is like fairly uh, American centric, which was just a you know that was like um, I had some regret about it. There was stuff in the cutting room floor like that I left out. Uh, I think Europe is clearly like a European regulation, and like the 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 press in in, in the UK is a big part of the story and some of the changes. Anyway, sorry, but so the like just wanted to clear my conscience there, which is that uh, the the book itself because it's such a it's an American company and like, because I, I couldn't, I didn't want to write like an 800 page thing. I, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you talk to, if you talk to any employees, um, I don't think this is, this is unique to Google, but to work outside of Mountain View's Google's headquarters or YouTube's headquarters, there is like a, a, like, you know, they have to sort of wait for California to wake up to make decisions. Like they feel like very second class in the, the way they operate, um, you know, emerging markets, uh, this was uh, certainly the case at, at Facebook and, and definitely at YouTube. We don't talk about it enough. You know, they, they went in, they pushed for like, we want people to produce um, YouTube and, and local languages across the world without any of the resources for staffing for moderation or not just moderation, but like having policy people to like understand the political landscape. India, where, where YouTube is the, the biggest audience, TikTok has, has been banned there. YouTube has uh, something on like 360 million monthly viewers. It's just insane, right? It's more people than the entire U.S. And and I think, you know, there are dozens of languages spoken there, like YouTube's ability to moderate and not just actually literally just understand the languages being spoken in, at, at scale. They uh, certainly are, are not adequate around that. Uh, and then two, like to understand the intricacies of like caste and like Indian politics and be able to identify, you know, like hate speech there and then deal with uh, the Indian government. So yes, there, there could be whole chapters or books about like um, YouTube and other platforms in, in India. Why are they so parochial? Is sort of your question. Uh, I don't know. That's a good, I, I mean, I think Google would push back on that and certain like they run, Google's run by an Indian born engineer. It had a big, you know, the, you mentioned T-Series, which was the Bollywood channel that, um, like the huge Bollywood hits on YouTube that, that became ascendant, um, and like took PewDiePie's crown for most subscribers. T-Series was, was, I hit that sweet spot for, for YouTube and Google, which was, um, you know, it was a traditional media company ostensibly like coming onto YouTube, which they've always wanted. Uh, it was, they had this big push for the called next billion users. It's a whole like division within, within Google. Focused on, on, on like India and Asia or in basically everywhere, but China. And so, you know, I think the company has certainly more like Google, it, given just Google, I think has is certainly thinking a lot more about the rest of the world than, than other companies. So maybe I'll push back on that a little bit. I do think, and like some of the decisions they make are, you know, even some of the content moderation decisions in the sense that like they want to be, uh, they want to have like a, as much as they can, like a blanket global policy. You know, I, here's an example, like somewhat former executive said this to me and, you know, cause they were talking about they disagreed. It was after YouTube had made a pretty stringent uh, policy around the 2020 election in the U S uh, which was like widely agreed, like 
there are a lot of people that agreed like this was the right case. You know, you basically want to like uh, prohibit people from saying the 2020 election was rigged. Um, and that like the, the Trump argument that, that it was stolen. And the question was like, is YouTube going to do the same thing for Venezuela? Is it going to do the same thing in like any disputed election now? I think the, the, outer, the obvious response to that is like, why go into this market without this sort of plan? But uh, I think that's the, the, that certainly those conversations are happening in, inside Google. You know, like when, when Russia, when the Kremlin called for, for Google and Apple to remove Navalny, the, the opposition leader in, in Russia, yeah, I believe it was a voting app. You remember that recently this past year? I heard from people on Google. It's like, well, you know, Kamala Harris, the vice president in the U.S., was basically calling for us to take down Trump's account. Like, how is that any different? And I think that's a little bit of um, uh, bending backwards uh, logically, but but just want to give readers a sense of like how this powerful company thinks. Like, they that I think that is an, an important to to get across and understand. I think that's a very fair defense. Um, and actually, you know, you mentioned the PewDiePie. And you mentioned PewDiePie regularly throughout throughout your work. He is a Swede, American in many ways, culturally, but 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 a Swede. There are five words after you describe him paying for someone to write uh, hate speech uh, on the sign, and, and the, the words are still he posted the video. And I think that can apply to PewDiePie. I think it can apply to Logan Paul and his video in the Japanese suicide forest. It can apply to millions of videos here. This compulsion to create content feeding into the algorithm and ever increasingly extreme, do you think that that's something that uh, was there from the start, that's still there? Do you think it's inherent to YouTube? How, how, how important are those words, still he posted the video, to a creator's mindset throughout this history? Uh, I think they're really important. I'm glad you latched onto them. There's another much more benign example, but in, of a, of a, they talk about a, a Olga Kay, which is she was one of like the first YouTubers and uh, early on and, and then like decided to leave, I think around 2014 or 2015 and like had a moment where she like posting these videos like almost, almost daily just because she felt like she had to, right? And like telling the audience like, sorry, I don't have a neck, like basically just post the entire video to say like, sorry, I don't have a, another video for you today. I don't think that's unique to YouTube. I think that like TikTok and, and Instagram, I think, um, you know, any, any place that there's like a, uh, both a financial incentives and then like a, just a technological incentive to, to take peak posting. People are going to do that. You know, it's like, I, I, like, I do think that the PewDiePie is a, is a much more complicated story, but in some degree, like, similarly to the, like, creator burnout, like, all creators, major creators, have, a lot of them have addressed this and dealt with this issue. Like, it's not, and I think, like, YouTube talks about it this way, and I think it's really interesting. Like, they have the first half of it right, and they don't have a solution for the, the second half. The first half is like, oh, like, well, we're not like TV. Like, TV has, you know, TVs and movies, you, like, shoot for nine months, then you get a break. Like, there's, like, a, there's a programming schedule that's like built in. Um, and I think, you know, like look at, we haven't talked about kids yet, but like children's content is, is gigantic on YouTube. Um, there are laws in place in, in California and other states, like children can only sh- like work as like for child labor laws, basically you can only work in media a certain hour. That doesn't exist in the internet. Uh, and there's no, there was no until recently like regulation for, for, um, like YouTube basically operated in this sort of gray zone legally. And I think they're like for children and creators too, like 
that's a really fascinating example because they, like a sense of agency, like how much of these kids actually posting versus how much of their parents posting or forcing them to post. And so, sorry, YouTube is well aware that like, oh, burnout is, is partially because like creators feel compelled to do this. Like we're not telling them to do this. You know, it's like, well, even though your, your sort of algorithms are, are making it pretty clear that they need to, to post I mean, and YouTube sort of pushed back on this a few years ago and said like, no, 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 there's, you know, we have some data that shows if you don't post every day, you still don't lose traffic. I don't, I'm like, as far as I know, they haven't actually like shown that data publicly, which suggests to me that it's not like that strong of a case. Uh, and, and they don't, I don't think they have a solution in, in place. And, you know, a lot of those conversations about creator burnout that they were having a few years ago have sort of disappeared because now you have this, um, new internet, new competition from TikTok. And so YouTube's telling creators like, Hey, you need to be posting shorts and long form. Like, and like basically, you know, it's going back to this, like you need to be posting here on shorts in addition to your TikToks. So I, I think, you know, this is the way that the, the platform is, is structured. Like, it doesn't really make sense for them just to solve the burnout problem. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So another, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of times there the algorithm telling them. It's sort of this this Lovecraftian god that you that you offer it up and the algorithm either chooses to, to favor you or not. And most of the discourse recently has been about how the algorithm has pushed people towards traditionally, you know, conservative, far right, or right sorts of things. There's a brilliant case study you talk about the sort of YouTube skeptics, for which I, when I was a teenager, used to, you know, binge watch. And um, and then you, you mentioned that this is sort of like a 17th century coffee house, but at some point the conversation shifted and suddenly misogyny and homophobia and some really toxic stuff happens. Just going to put it bluntly, is YouTube's algorithm inherently right-wing or is that simply the people who go on it, the ecosystem itself? I don't know if, a, if an algorithm can be inherently uh, political in some ways. I think, like, I, I do think that, like, the algorithm is, is you know, not this sort of, it's sort of like the book, I, I like that Lovecraftian term you use. Um, you know, I also wanted to demonstrate, like, that there are people inside the company that often felt like this thing was out of their control, but like they, they are writing this, like, like they are, they have like, they're, they're people at YouTube that like have this code and, and like this, this machine is, they have a lot of neural networks and artificial intelligence in it, but it's not like it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not its own sentient being. So I think like, I do think do, I certainly think it's true that like the, the company say like was, Pretty naive about uh, politics for, for for many years, um, and then for a variety of reasons, like didn't act on some of the fringe and, and far right. I think more recently, they certainly had more recently, and part of that was because of like they're responding to pressure from their employees, from advertisers, from politics, from from society. Like after the George Floyd killing, like that was really when they like flipped the switch and, and turned off a, a bunch of accounts. And after Christchurch, the Christchurch shooting was another example of this like extremely pivotal pivotal moment in the company. I do think like Becca Lewis is this researcher at Stanford that's done some phenomenal work and people can I mentioned the book and it's like she goes much deeper on this, like the, the, the structure of 
of YouTube and sort of influencer and just like the way that it's, it's built to like have these sort of strong audiences, um, uh, is, is made for, uh, it's just like tailored for, um, uh, what she claimed, like, like arguably correct, like a lot of institutional money, like think tanks kind of came in and like created, like put out these, these, uh, young YouTubers and bloggers that were really appealing to people there. I do think that part of the issue was that just the way that media works, like a lot of traditional media, like MSNBC and the sort of like, if you call it the progressive and, and, and liberal media, like just ignored YouTube and the internet for a long time. I think that's changing, but I think that was like just right wing media, which is like much better at using the internet and using YouTube. Um, I think those are like the, the two main factors. Uh, that you have these these sort of networks, like Becco's term, these sort of influencer like right wing networks in place. Um, there's another interesting research on the like, great replacement theory, which also operates in this sort of like a network of videos that make very uh, channels and in, institutions and, and vloggers that make very similar videos about a very similar about a similar theme. Uh, and I think and the great replacements are a fascinating example because they sort of uh, they they're really good at like these channels. Um, Walking up to YouTube's line and not, and figuring out ways not to cross it. And I think like there's, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, they don't act because in some ways because they like, you know, they'll talk about immigration in, in a particular way and driving home this message that like Muslim immigrants uh, in, in the U.S., like Latino immigrants are like this great threat to, to white society or American society. Uh, and for a long time, there's like free reign on, on, on YouTube. And, and I think there's been a lot of interesting, um, you know, back and forth about sort of the, the, how much of it is the, the rabbit hole effect, um, and driving, driving viewers, uh, to these extremes. I, I think what's equally interesting that I found in the book compelling is like how much the algorithm has the, the other side of the market, which is how much it, it, the, what, what it sort of, what incentives it creates for, for the creators and people, the broadcasters and what kind of video messages and like well aware, you know, this was, um, uh, I think it was like the wrestling WWE. Uh, I don't know who it was, but controversy creates cash, right? And like it's the same reason why the, the drama channels, there are a bunch of like TMZ style drama channels that have done like phenomenal. And then more recently, we've seen like the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, like those things do really well because people at, like are drawn, like that hits all the right engagement metrics. And I think YouTube has, is still very much struggling with like how to, how to handle that. And I will say as the, as a counterpoint to the, the right wing side of things, a character that features a lot in your book and that I'm a huge fan of, uh, ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn, um, who's just a brilliant creator who creates these sort of feature film length discussions. I mean, there's a, there's a quote you say, it's hard to imagine CBS or Netflix broadcasting a trans woman unpacking Hegel in lingerie and cat eye contacts. So there are, you know, left wingers and progressive people on the platform doing amazingly interesting and things that wouldn't get, a, you know, you wouldn't be able to do elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I want to be very clear. Like I, I, this book is sort of a celebration too of, of YouTube culture and creators, which I think like, and it's sort of call for like, pay more attention to them because they're, they're influential and important. Uh, and like the company, like, Hey, pay more attention to them because they're this, uh, effectively like a big gig economy that you, you created without, without a lot of like insurance in the place. And, and Natalie in consequence is a really interesting example because you know, she makes, I believe, uh, as of a few years ago, but I think it's still the case, like most income from Patreon. Uh, so Patreon is this, I'm just started by a YouTuber that, um, Early on, like a YouTube musician that like had these viral hits, 
uh, and because he was his band was playing covers, because the way the copyrights and management right music rights works, like wasn't making that much money on, on YouTube, and said so, like, wow, I'm spending so much money to produce this this thing that has like a big audience, and yet I'm like not that's not paying off for me. Start like a patronage model, um, which has has taken off, and and like YouTube is now sort of had like a competing product of that. You know, I talked to people at YouTube about like why didn't we invent that first, which I think is a really interesting question. Like the, in in another um, sort of way to explore this like path, what could have been, and even like a path forward is like well, how does the internet work in more of a, like a patronage model uh, where you know creators can make things that don't need to scale to as many eyeballs as possible in order to, to be successful. A final question that jumps on that, that final um, word that you said, that you said creator, and there are these words, content, product, creator, the sort of nomenclature that's, that's ubiquitous now. There's also a, an interesting moment when Chad and Steve announced the move with Google and, and they, they end the video by going, oh, we can't do that cut this sort of faux realness that I think Lindsay Ellis calls manufactured authenticity on, on YouTube. There's a sense that both with the nomenclature and with this sort of style that YouTube has shifted something. It has, it has changed media in some way that you can see it trickling into traditional media as well. There's moments where you talk about it's close to a collective human memory as a, as a big thing, but as a discourse and, and as a sort of engine for, for creativity, how do you see YouTube changing media and changing art yeah there's an obvious one that you know uh we didn't mention like you know one of youtube's early struggles and it, it spends a lot of time in the in its in the book and the important part of its history is it got sued by viacom uh for a billion dollars for copyright infringement viacom owns mtv fast forward you know uh 15 years later um youtube won that lawsuit uh viacom mtv now in the u.s at least the programming like the most popular show is just like a recap of youtube viral youtube videos um, so like that was just a, a perfect encapsulation of like, uh, how the, the culture and like the kingmakers just, just, um, flipped. Uh, I mean, I think like, you know, TikTok is, is now ascendant and, um, like taking over sort of youth culture, uh, and it's really, and it's like similar, I think it's a similar, uh, it's similar dynamic to, to YouTube. Um, you know, I do like, it's sort of, there's two, what one is, there's like certainly like a, you know, there's a YouTube aesthetic that has uh, permeated a lot of things. And, and I think that the benefits of that is like, you know, the TikTok is, you can see this too, and it's still on YouTube, like unleashing all sorts of like forms of creativity, uh, and brilliance that like never existed in, in traditional media. Uh, and that stuff is like obviously worth celebrating. You know, it's also, there is a certain dynamic about how just like with, with YouTube shorts and TikTok of like flipping through and, um, and sort of this numbing quality that I, I think is, um, I'm really curious to see how that researchers feel about that 20 years from now. But, um, I think the other, the other like permanent change in, in that, that YouTube has made is this idea that like, yeah, it's still pretty revolutionary. Like it's not that new of an idea that like you can, you don't need like the gatekeepers, you don't need agents, um, you don't need producers, you don't need directors, like you can sort of, build your own media empires. And that's just beginning. Like Mr. Beast is uh, right now probably the most popular YouTuber in the world. Like there's no, there was assumption for a long time that like, oh, YouTube talent is going to like go on to make TV and movies. Like Mr. Beast is going to keep making YouTube, I think, until he like can't anymore. Like it's, it's, it's now become like it is the pinnacle 
uh, effectively for careers. And, um, I think that's sort of transforming the company and like a lot of the idea of like pop culture and entertainment. And that'll be like, I don't, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Final question, which is influencer boxing. Are you, are you aware of this phenomenon? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Logan Paul and KCI, yeah. And, and also, I mean, it's, it's now this, this burgeoning, you know, world and, and, and media empire. Do you see, you know, traditional media, have, have they incorporated it? Have they, you know, sort of changed in any way? I mean, obviously the bleed from John Oliver and YouTube and, uh, you know, carpool karaoke and YouTube, it's, it's, it's all, it's all bleeding in, but do you see a, a sort of singularity point or, or are they going to forever stay separate and a singularity point where like tradition, like sort of old school media and YouTube. Um, I think there'll be more. I mean, YouTube is like as a company is, is the one I mean, we mentioned TikTok and they're trying to like deal with TikTok, but they're also like, they are, you know, YouTube TV as a streaming service. Like they're, they're focusing a lot on like not just that, but also on like the year experience of watching YouTube on a, on a connected TV, a smart TV. I think they're going to start maybe like looking at, well, could there be a way for you to like leave a comment or a like or like engagement, like some sort of like buy merchandise. Basically, like, you know, YouTube is becoming more and more like TV and I think TV will become more and more like YouTube. So, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see that. And I think TikTok is also trying to move in that direction too. Like, um, they, they both are not just comfortable with uh, commanding our attention on phones. Like they want, they want the big screen too. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much, Mark, for, for your time. This has been so interesting. Um, audience, please check out, like, comment, subscribe from Mark. It is a really genuinely fascinating read. Um, and it isn't as mean to YouTube as I've made it out. It is, it is, it is a fair reading, I think. Thank you so much, Mark. Audience, please check that out and, uh, have a good day. Thanks for having me. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Mark Bergen and was produced and presented by Luke Naylor Perrett. The executive producers are myself and Esme Bright, and the series is edited by John Daugherty. If you enjoyed our dive into the world of tech, join us next Friday when I'll be speaking with Adrian Hon. He'll be telling us about how the ostensibly benevolent techniques of game design are being used by corporations and governments to create a pernicious new system of social control. That's next week on the podcast. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.